Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. And we are back to Mackey's Revised History of Freemasonry with Chapter 48, The First Link, Settlement of Roman Colleges of Artificers in the Provinces of the Empire. The first link of the chain connecting the Roman Colleges of Artificers with the building corporations of the Middle Ages is found in the spreading out and settlement of the former in the conquered colonies of Rome. We now feel that from what has been submitted, that it is fair to say it has been satisfactorily shown that the Freemasons at Rome were incorporated into colleges where the principles of their art were diligently studied and taught to younger members who stood for that purpose in the place occupied by the apprentices in the Stonemason's Lodge at a long and later period. We have seen that an immunity or freedom from all public services was granted by the Emperor Constantine to workmen, and among others to architects for the express reason that they might have the opportunity of gaining knowledge of their professions and of teaching that information and art to their disciples. These architects, or master builders, one of whom was always appointed to do every legion with workmen from the colleges under him, carried the skill which they had been enabled to acquire at home with them into the colonies or provinces they visited. There, if they remained long enough, which was usually the case, as the legions were for the most part stationed for extended periods, they erected, besides the military defenses constructed for the safety of the army, and the roads which they opened for its convenience, more lasting buildings such as temples. Of this we have abundant evidence in the ruins which still remain of some of these structures, ruins so decayed and wasted as to supply us with only very limited and yet sufficient evidence of their former existence and even splendor. More especially is this the case in the many inscriptions on stone or marble tablets, hundreds of which in every province have been collected by Gruder, Muratori, Renesius, and other writers who have devoted themselves to the study of Roman antiquities. Thus we shall find in Spain, in Gaul, and in Britain abundant evidences of the kind referred to of these labors of the Roman architects, while these provinces were under Roman control. It cannot be denied that this must have exercised a decided influence on the original inhabitants and have introduced a more refined taste and a superior skill in the art of building. Nor was the influence thus exerted of an altogether short-lived nature. When the Roman control ceased and the legions were withdrawn to sustain the feeble powers of a decaying empire, threatened by the wild foes of the north with destruction, not all the Romans who had come with the legions, or since their coming made homes in the country, left with them. A very long series of years had passed. Many of these architects and builders had been naturalized, as it were, and were unwilling to depart from the homes they had made. They remained and continued to teach, preserve, and extend among the people with whom they were living the skill and the customs which they had originally brought from Rome. Voilette le Duc says in his Dictionary of Architecture that in the Middle Ages the workmen of the southern cities of Europe preserved the Roman traditions, and that in them the corporations or colleges did not cease to exist, but that these bodies were not established in the northern cities until the time of the affranchisement or freeing of the communes, a commune being the smallest political subdivision. 
Even if this were the fact, it would only be lengthening the chain of connection. It is fair to suppose that the corporations of the North, at whatever later period they were established, must have adopted the system of fraternities from the southern cities where they had long existed as a part of the Roman tradition, so that even in this view the chain is unbroken which binds the corporations of builders of the Middle Ages with those of Rome. But we believe that it will hereafter be shown to be historically true that the traditions and usages of the Roman colleges were well preserved in the early period of English architecture, and that out of these traditions sprang in part the regulations of the Saxon guilds. But this is a question for future consideration when we come to the investigation of the after-Roman architecture of Gaul and England. Evidences of the influence of the Roman colleges on the province of Spain are very abundant, arising from the peculiar relations of that province to the empire. Upon the expelling of the Carthaginians from Spain, which occurred 206 BC, it was erected into a Roman province, at least so much as had been conquered by the Romans under the Scipios, which did not include more than half of the peninsula. Thenceforward it was governed sometimes by one praetor and sometimes by two, and two legions were always kept posted in the province. The influence of this political arrangement was of the most important character. The soldiers married with the native women, and thus became so weaned from Italy that when the legions were disbanded, many of them refused to return home and continued their residence in Spain. A little more than a century after its conquest, such a system of internal communication had been established by the opening of roads, and especially the military one of Pompeii over the Pyrenees Mountains, that the country was laid open to travelers, many of whom settled there. In the time of Strabo, a portion of the province had been so changed in manners as to have become almost Roman. The great privilege of citizenship was granted to many of the inhabitants, and they had even forgotten their native language. Spain, thus becoming more closely connected with the empire than any of the other provinces, furnished, as it is well known, some distinguished names to Latin literature, such as Lucanus, the poet, the older and the younger Seneca, Columella, Quintilian, and the epigram expert Marshall. During the reign of Augustus, many considerable colonies were founded, as represented by the modern cities of Zaragoza, Meridia, Badajoz, and many others. In these cities, the art of building flourished. They were adorned with some of the finest productions of Roman architecture, of many of which the grand ruins still remain, while temples, theaters, baths, circuses, and other public edifices, which had been erected by the Roman Freemasons, have perished through the waste of time and the destructive influences of ravaging armies and interstate wars. Well known is it that Spain was, from the earliest times, an object of the grasping ambition of foreign peoples, and that it was in turn invaded and conquered by the Phoenicians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Goths, and the Arabs. All of these nations were attracted by the delights of the climate, the fertility of the soil, and the richness of the mines. Equally is it true and fully on record that the Romans, that from a longer duration of their control and from the more solid character of the edifices which they constructed, have left a greater number of architectural monuments, and these in a better state of preservation than the other nations who went before or followed them. But the invasion of the Goths after the departure of the Romans, and the later more permanent occupation of the peninsula by the Saracenic Arabs or Moors, so completely withdrew the architects of Spain from all communication with those of the rest of Europe, and so thoroughly wiped out all effects of the earlier Roman influence, that it is impossible to trace an unbroken connection between the Roman colleges of Freemasons who left behind such wonderful evidences of their skill, and the guilds or corporations of the Middle Ages that in other countries were their successors. 
We must note the curious historical fact that while of all the Roman provinces, Spain was the one in which the Roman control was most firmly established, it was also the one in which, after the decay of the empire, all the results of that autocracy were the most thoroughly wiped out. Spain has therefore been alluded to on the present occasion, not with any intention of making it a part of that train of succession, which, beginning with the colleges of Numa, ended in the guilds of stonemasons of the Middle Ages, but because it furnishes a very complete instance of how these Roman colleges of artificers extended their labors and introduced their art into foreign countries. In the three other provinces of the Western Empire, the two Gauls and Britain, the connection of the Roman colleges with the guilds or corporations which sprang up later may be more readily traced. Cisalpine, or Criterior Gaul, was the name given by the classical writers to that part of Gallia which was south of the Alpine Mountains and formed what is more familiarly known as the Northern Italy. Deriving its first settlement, if we may trust to the authority of Livy, which however Niebuhr rejects, by an immigration of the Gauls beyond the mountains in the time of Tarquinius Priscus, these people were for centuries engaged in struggles with the Romans, whose attempts to subdue them were always unsuccessful. When Hannibal, the Carthaginian general, attacked Italy and sought the destruction of Rome and the Roman power, many of them willingly became his allies. About 200 years before the Christian era, the two most important tribes, the Insubrians and the Boians, were subdued by the Roman legions under the consuls C. Cornelius Cethegus and Q. Minucius Rufus, and from that time to the reign of Augustus, Cisalpine Gaul came slowly but surely under the Roman control. When it was established as a Roman province, it was rapidly filled with a Roman population and became one of the most valuable of the Roman possessions. Most of the towns received that political status known as the Jus Latii, or the Latinus, by which they were placed in the middle position between strangers and the Roman citizens, and the pure right of citizenship was bestowed upon their magistrates, which was, in the time of Caesar, extended to all the inhabitants, the larger towns being made municipalities. Fifty years before Christ, all Cisalpine Gaul had been invested with the right of citizenship, and consisted of Roman communities organized after the Roman pattern. This meant the introduction among the people of Roman civilization and refinement. Among the arts that were encouraged, that of architecture was not the least. We have ample evidence in the still remaining monuments and in inscriptions that the Roman architects or members of the colleges were busily employed in the labors of their craft. The proofs of this fact are to be found in the modern cities of northern Italy. These are the successors of the Cisalpine colonies, and they have preserved it in their museums or in private collections, the memorials and relics of their ancient prosperity and refinement. Thus Mutina, now the modern Moderna in northern Italy, was one of the most flourishing of the Lombard towns. Cicero did not hesitate to call it, quote, the strongest and most splendid colony of the Roman people, end quote. So wealthy was this city as to have been able to support for a long time the army of Brutus, at length it fell into decay, but was never abandoned, and again rose to prosperity in the Middle Ages under the name of Modena, by which it is still known today. Although the great architectural remains of the ancient city were employed in the construction of the cathedral and other public buildings or of the modern one, or were buried under the layers of flood and river deposits of gravel and soil, yet the Museum of Modena contains a valuable collection of tablets from tombs and of inscriptions would have been dug up at various times and which furnish evidence of the existence and the labors of the Roman architects and builders under the empire. 
There was another town of Cisalpingal called Aquileia, built by the Romans to defend the fertile plains of Italy on the northeast from the inroads of savage tribes. Two centuries before Christ, it was settled by several thousand colonists from Rome and became a place of great commercial prosperity. In the 5th century, it was plundered and burnt by Attila, king of the Huns. Though it never again became a a place of importance, it was always inhabited, and in the 6th century was the see of a bishop, and, to borrow the language of Bunbury, quote, it maintained a sickly existence throughout the Middle Ages, end quote. At the present day, it is an obscure village with only a cathedral. Although Aquileia contains no vestiges of Roman edifices, the site, says the writer Bunbury, quote, abounds with remains of antiquity, coins, engraved stones, and other minor objects, as well as shafts and capitals of columns, fragments of frieze, etc., the splendor and beauty of which sufficiently attest the magnificence of the ancient city, end quote. Among the inscriptions found there are some which relate to the temple and the worship of Linus, a local sun god whom the Romans identified with Apollo. All the works of which we have these memorials must have been affected by the Roman architects, who, with their colleges, were surely among the six or seven thousand who emigrated from Rome and built up the city. Bononia, or the modern Bologna, was built, it is supposed, by the Tuscans, and was raised to the rank of a Roman colony about two centuries before Christ. It continued to be an important and flourishing city under the empire. Though it suffered decay, it was able in the 5th century to withstand successfully the attacks of Alaric, king of the Goths. It never lost the continuity of its existence, but after the fall of the empire, regained in a great measure its prosperity, and at length assumed in the Middle Ages a lead among the cities of northern Italy, which it still retains. Far from probable is it that Bonomia soon lost its traditions of those arts it practiced when a Roman colony, and which are attested by fragments of sculpture and traditions which have been preserved. The modern city of Ivrea, which is an important place, was the ancient Eparoidia, a Roman colony founded about 100 years before Christ. The strength of its position as commanding two important roads through the Alps gave it great military value, and it does not, therefore, appear to have been subjected to any great process of decay. As late as the close of the 4th century, it was a considerable town and was occupied as a military station by part of a legion. The modern city still contains a fine Roman tomb and some other remains of its ancient splendor. But the most interesting of all the cities of Cisalpine Gaul, in any reference to the connection of the Roman colleges, which labored there, with the fraternities of the Middle Ages, which succeeded them, is Comum, an important city at the foot of the Alps and on the borders of the Lake of Como. The present name of the city is Como. This city is supposed to have been the birthplace of both the elder and the younger Pliny, the latter of whom made it his favorite residence and established in it a school of learning. Under the empire, Como was a flourishing municipality, and its prosperity was secured by the beauty and convenience of its position at the end of the lake, for it became the point of embarkation for travelers who were proceeding to cross the Raetian Alps. The city retained its prosperity to the close of the Roman Empire. In the 4th century, a fleet was stationed there for the protection of the lake. Cassiodorus speaks of it in the 6th century as one of the military bulwarks of Italy and extols the richness of the palaces with which the shores of the lake and its vicinity was adorned. Como continued to retain its importance in the Middle Ages, and it is from there that the masters of Como, the traveling Freemasons, went back and forth over Europe in the 10th century to erect cathedrals, monasteries, and palaces in the various countries which they visited. But this body of craftsmen, whose acts form a more valuable 
portion of the historical testimony of the connection between the Roman colleges of artificers and the corporations of Freemasons in the Middle Ages will be discussed and described in more extended manner than at this stage in our inquiry, where for the present this simple allusion to them must suffice. We next come to consider the architectural condition of Transalpine Gaul, or Gaul proper. Under the Roman government, this subject may now be briefly discussed, as the early condition of Roman architecture in Gaul will be more freely treated in another chapter. The name of Transalpine Gaul was given by the Romans to that country extending from the Pyrenean Mountains to the River Rhine, within which limits modern France is contained. This part of the world was first conquered by the Romans under Julius Caesar, and remained a province of the empire until its final decline. The Gauls are represented to have been a fierce and bloodthirsty people, though at the time of the conquest, Caesar found an improvement in the manners of some of the tribes, but their progress towards civilization and refinement was rapid after they came under the control of the Romans. Caesar had formed a legion of Gaulish soldiers whom he armed and drilled after the Roman style. Later, when he had arrived at the dictatorship, he made these soldiers Roman citizens and sent Roman colonies to several of the cities. Under the Emperor Augustus, Gaul became rapidly Romanized. Schools were established in the large towns, and the Latin language and the Roman law were adopted. In religion, a compromise was brought about, and there was a mixture of Gallic and Roman worship, though wherever the Romans made a permanent settlement, the temples were erected to the Roman gods. Architectural works were pursued with great energy, but with little foresight. Temples and other public buildings, together with bridges, roads, and aqueducts, were erected over all the country. These must have cost great sums of money, as the cost was wholly paid by the inhabitants without aid from the mother government, great distress began to prevail among the people, which led to several uprisings. Though the ambitions of the Roman architects had kept poor the colonists, the influence of refinement in art continued to prevail long after those troubles. Gaul shows us an almost unbroken series of links between the architecture of the Roman colleges and that of the medieval Freemasons. That part of Gaul, which lay along the shore of the Mediterranean Sea, and by the Romans forcibly called the province, Provincia, had been civilized and Romanized long before the conquest of the other parts of the country. It was in the towns of this province that the most extensive operations in architecture were exhibited. We must remark, however, that all over Gaul, outside of the Provincia, as well as within it, there are ample evidences of the splendid style of architecture that was cultivated by the architects who accompanied the legions, or the colonists who went from Rome to settle in Gaulish towns. Betre, now Beziers, received a colony of soldiers of the 7th Legion, who constructed a causeway, of which some traces still exist. There are also the vestiges of an amphitheater and the remains of an aqueduct. Arelate, now known as Arles, was a city of the Provincia. The Roman remains are very numerous there. Among them, an obelisk or monumental pillar of Egyptian granite, which was dug up some centuries ago, and in 1675 was set up in one of the public squares. The amphitheater, or open-air circus building, was estimated as capable of holding 20,000 persons. There is also an old cemetery which contains many ancient tombs, both pagan and Christian. Nemausis, the modern Nimes, which was also a city of the Provincia, contains many remains of the skill of the old Roman architects and the splendor of their works. The amphitheater, not quite as large as that of Arles, is in a good state of preservation. There is also a temple still existing, which, as Arthur Young says in his travels in France, is beyond comparison the most light, elegant, and pleasing building that he ever beheld. 
Under the modern name of Maison Carré, or the Square House, it is now used as a museum of paintings and antiquities. But the noblest monument that the Romans have left in Gaul is the aqueduct or waterway, now called the Pont de Garde, which is between 9 and 12 miles from Nimes. The bridge on which the aqueduct was laid is still solid and strong, and is, says George Long, a magnificent monument of the grandeur of Roman conceptions and of the boldness of their execution. We deem it useless to extend these descriptions farther. All over Gaul were cities colonized by the Romans, who gave to the native inhabitants a portion of their skill, their taste, and their refinement. Temples, amphitheaters, theaters, aqueducts, and public and private buildings of every kind are to be found in all the large and many of the small cities of modern France, which sometimes well-preserved and sometimes in ruins, always show that the spirit of architectural enterprise was imparted to the people under the Roman government and by the Roman architects and builders. How well that spirit was preserved and how it became afterward developed in the Freemasonry of the Middle Ages will be shown the more clearly as we proceed in our further historical researches. Britain was twice invaded by Caesar, but on neither occasion did he stay long enough in the island to affect any influence on the inhabitants. Augustus afterward planned an expedition to Britain, but the project was never carried to success. Not until the time of Claudius was there any serious attempt at conquest. Under his orders, an army was laid by Aulus Plautus into the southeastern part of the island. The city of Camelodunum, now Malden, was taken. Claudius, who had visited Britain to share in the triumphs of the victory, returned to Rome and assumed the surname of Britannicus in proof of his success, leaving his general Plautus to go forward and complete the conquest, which, however, he did not do. Vespasian soon after subdued the Isle of Wight and took twenty of the Opida, or British towns. His son Titus also distinguished himself in many battles with the native tribes. But though the island was at this time entered to some extent by the Roman legions, and the southern coasts were occupied by them, the island was yet not yet conquered. The struggle between the independent spirit of the natives and the ambitious designs of their Roman invaders lasted for nearly half a century, and the subjection of the whole island was not brought about until the reign of Domitian. Thereafter, Britain took the form and felt all the influences of a Roman province, but unlike Spain and Gaul, was a discontented one. Probably it was too far away from the objects of the present work to trace, with any great detail, the progress of the Roman power under the various emperors who governed the island from the date of its conquest to the final withdrawal of the Roman armies in the beginning of the 5th century. It is sufficient to say that during the period of time intervening between these two epochs, Britain had become completely Romanized. Colonies were founded, cities possessing the right of Roman citizenship were established, legions were scattered in various places, and soldiers and settlers from the imperial city had made homes to stay, so that, as Gildas says, it was to be viewed not as a British, but as a Roman island. Britain, says Sharon Turner, quote, was not now in the state in which the Romans had found it. Its towns were no longer barricaded, forced, nor its houses, wood cabins covered with straw, nor its inhabitants, naked savages with painted bodies, were clothed with skins. It had been, for above three centuries, the seat of Roman civilization and luxury. Roman emperors had been born and others had reigned in it. The natives had been ambitious to obtain and hence had not only built houses, temples, courts, and marketplaces in their towns, but had adorned them with porticos, galleries, baths, and saloons, and with mosaic pavements, and emulated every Roman improvement. They had distinguished themselves as legal advocates and orators, and for their study of the Roman poets. Their cities had been made images of Rome itself, and the natives had become Romans." End quote. 
We cannot doubt that the skill and experience of the Roman architects who traveled with the legions or who came from Rome to Britain after its conquest had been imparted to the native Britons and that the chain of connection between the Roman colleges and the local colleges of artificers in the island was well established. Many inscriptions and the remains of Roman buildings found everywhere in modern England furnish ample evidence of these truths. Dorchester, which was the Roman Durnovaria, has besides the remains of the old Roman ruins in several camps, those of what was probably an amphitheater, attesting its former importance and the labors of the Roman builders. Dover, the ancient Dubris, has even now an octagon tower attached to a church, and which is almost wholly built of Roman bricks. This building is supposed to have been a lighthouse in the time of the Romans. London, or Londinium, was a very old city and was the capital of ancient Britain as it is now of modern England. Though not honored by the Romans with the rights of a municipality, it was always, as Tacitus says, from the abundance of its trade, a place of great importance. The remains of Roman monuments which have been found in London show that it contained many splendid buildings. When the foundations of an old wall which bordered the river were laid open some years ago, it was found to be made up of materials that had been previously used in the construction of ancient buildings. Quote, the stones of which this wall was constructed, says Charles Roach Smith, were portions of columns, friezes, cornices, and also foundation stones. From their magnitude, character, and number, they gave an important and interesting insight into the obscure history of Roman London in showing the architectural changes that had taken place in it. End quote. Architectural fragments and the remains of tessellated pavements in great number have been discovered, which attest the magnificence of the Roman city, and traces of temples have also been found. The claim has been made that London was the station of a regiment of native Britons, which was contrary to the usage of the Roman emperors, who never stationed auxiliaries in their native countries. But we know that a colony of veterans had been stationed at Camelodunum, or Malden, not far off, and there are inscriptions proving the presence at various times of the soldiers of the 2nd, 6th, and 20th legions in the city. It is easy, therefore, to trace, as we must, the construction of these magnificent works to Roman architects supplied by the legions or the colonies. Eberacum, or York, is familiar to the Masonic student from the important part that it plays in the traditional history of English Freemasonry. York was a town of much importance in the times of the Romans, and seems to have been a favorite place of residence. At York was the permanent station of the 6th or Victorious Legion. The emperors Severus and Constantius died there, and here is said to have been the birthplace of Constantine the Great. Among the memorials of the Roman control which have been found at York are many remains of temples, baths, altars, votive tablets, and even private residences. Of the many inscriptions that have been preserved, one dedicated to the Egyptian god Serapis and a tablet or slab containing the carved figure of a man wearing a cap and clamus or short mantle, who is stabbing a bull, indicate the introduction by the Romans of the worship of a foreign god as well as the practice of the mystical rites of Mithras. At the beginning of the 5th century, the Roman Empire being at the time seemingly in danger of downfall, the legions and the Roman authority, which had ruled and protected Britain for so long a period, were withdrawn. The people were left to defend themselves from the inroads of the Danes and other savage attacks from the opposite shores of the continent. Many changes took place in the laws, the language, and the habits of the island. In time, after many wars, Britain became Anglo-Saxon Britain. But, as on the retirement of the Romans, many voluntarily remained, because they had become used to the country and, in many cases, had been connected by marriage with the natives. Britain did not altogether lose the influence of the seed that had been sown. 
especially in the art of building, although there was a deterioration, all the effects of Roman civilization were not lost. We believe it will not be difficult to trace the development of the system of trade guilds, which afterwards existed among the Anglo-Saxons and the English, to the suggestions of the similar guilds of the Roman colleges. The consideration of this particular branch of our subject will be taken up in a chapter devoted to that matter. What we have attempted has been to show that the Roman colleges, sending their architects to the colonies and cities established in the conquered provinces of the Roman Empire, had secured, in an unbroken succession, not only the principles of architecture, but the cooperative and well-regulated system of work, which, beginning at the earliest period of Roman history in the colleges of artificers, was to be carried throughout its acquired control by its legions and its colonists, and finally to be developed in a modern form in the corporations of operative Freemasons of the Middle Ages and finally, in the lodges of speculative Freemasons of the present day. So far, the first and second links of this chain of connection have been shown. We here close the history with the fall of the Roman government over the provinces at the beginning of the 5th century. As we proceed in these investigations, our inquiries must bring us successively to the condition of architecture and its gradual growth into new systems and various styles in all the countries which were once under the Roman control. We shall, we believe, find the principles of architecture changing from the influences of various causes exerted at these several times. Architecture will be constantly changing its features. The Roman, the Byzantine, the Gothic, and other styles will succeed and displace each other. But the system of cooperative or guild labor, which is the true connecting chain between the ancient and the modern methods of building, will always prevail and show in every successive age the unweakened influence of the old Roman guild or college. And that ends the chapter. But one thing that was interesting that came to mind as I was reading through that is I did get to spend a couple weeks traveling around England, Scotland, and Wales back in around 2002. And at that time, uh, my buddy, who was my tour guide, was from, or is from, Nottingham. And as we kind of toured the country, the actual town of Bath, England, is famous because of the Roman baths. And then up at the border between Scotland and England, I believe, uh, we actually found sections of Hadrian's Wall, part of a national park, and got out and took some pictures of that. So it is pretty cool to realize that there's still a lot of that stuff in the uh, that is to be found that the Roman influence is there in England. So with that, I will leave you and thanks for listening. And we'll pick up next week with the next chapter. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.